Coming up on Stu Does America, a school district in San Diego is forcing white privilege training on its teaching staff because schools don't quite have enough problems right now. Investigative reporter Chris Rufo is here with the insane details. Now let's talk about mugs. Steven Crowder fans like mugs. Black Rifle Coffee fans like mugs. You know who else like mugs? Conservanerds like the mugs. Right now at StuDoesMerch.com, you can stock up on all those sexy, exciting mugs for the holidays you've been craving. If you're feeling that holiday spirit, maybe you'd like one of our, it's not a riot, it's a mostly peaceful tree lighting mugs. They're extremely popular, so get yours while you can. Or maybe you'd prefer a jolly old Santifa Claus to adorn your glassware. Uh, you can find that at the store. Because who doesn't need a combination Santa Claus Antifa character? That's what we all need in our lives. And because we have officially run out of Nancy Pelosi sucks pens, uh, you can get a mug instead. It's the classiest mug I've ever seen. This is a great mug. You'd never know it says Nancy Pelosi sucks unless you looked really, really closely. It's all available now at stewdoesmerch.com. And speaking of Nancy Pelosi, she sure seems proud of the fact that she's stalling an extremely vital stimulus bill to help struggling Americans with the pandemic. Let's remember how much she sucks and do Pelosi's petty politics. Stu does America. You may not know this, but Nancy Pelosi sucks. She sucks in every way possible. I think she's terrible. I actually think she's awful, but Andrew Cuomo already has that title. So Nancy Pelosi sucks. We have these pens we did make up, as I mentioned. Nancy Pelosi sucks pens. And they have, we have bought up Every pen in America that is in this style that we could find. Uh, there's no more left. We've sold them all to you. And I appreciate you buying them uh, because Nancy Pelosi does suck. And I'm continually fascinated by the idea that this audience is so, so passionate to state that Nancy Pelosi sucks. They really think she sucks. And I, I think you're right on that one. This latest uh, you know, road that she's been going on is, is fascinating because she's not, she's not smart. And, and when maybe she was smarter at one point, but she's really kind of just a bumbling idiot at this point. You know, she's like 115 years old. I mean, I can't, I gotta say that when I'm 115 years old, I'm probably gonna be even worse. I'm gonna just be eating the Jenny's ice cream and not care at all about the country at that point. She has a passionate distaste for it, which I wish she would uh, relent on that particular idea. Uh, one of the things that has been going on, and, and we explained this at the time, uh, the COVID situation puts us all in a weird spot. I don't want governments, government spending all this money. I don't want it to happen. I, one of the first shows I did on the pandemic was talking about how we gotta be careful that we don't spend so much money here uh, that we spend ourselves into oblivion. So when the pandemic is gone, we're all going to you know, have money that's worthless. Uh, we'll talk about that coming up a little bit uh, later on in the program when it comes to the economy and the value of the dollar. I think that's important. But if you sit here and you look at what Nancy Pelosi did, we had this initial burst of you know, three rounds of stimulus, a lot of money on the line, and then it ran out. But it ran out at a bad time. If you happen to be a person who has lost your job because of the pandemic, uh, you know uh, all about this. If your business went out of business during the pandemic, you know that this kind of went, this all happened at, at a bad time in particular because it was an election year. And so once we got into an election year, politics takes over. Nancy Pelosi was not going to give Donald Trump a dime to help this economy. She didn't care that it hurt a lot of people. She didn't care 
that it was a really bad idea for the American people. She threw out a ridiculous proposal of like $3.5 trillion that she knew no one could ever accept because it was so much money. And then she basically gave no ground on that. I mean, she she made a couple of concessions to make it look like she was uh, she was negotiating. But in reality, she never had an intention of giving the Republicans a package because that's how she looks at it. She doesn't look at it as helping business owners. She doesn't care about that. She cares about hurting people like Donald Trump. She cares about hurting uh, Senate candidates. She wants to make sure that she holds on to her job. So she wanted the economy towards the end. I mean, I'm not this is not a conspiracy theory. She's you know coming out and saying it now. She wanted the economy to be in a rough spot. She would not give any ground there. Um, now, now that we're past uh, the election and, you know, I mean, uh, she knows that she's got her gig. Uh, she is talking now about a nine hundred and eight billion dollar proposal that has come from this sort of um, moderate uh, group of senators uh, that are trying to hash out something so that some money can go through as soon as possible. We're past the election now. There's not really a, a point in uh, withholding any of this uh, money. And so this is what they're going to try to do now. $908 billion. Wouldn't be surprised if it goes a little higher than that. They're stuck on this idea of keeping it under a trillion dollars. Whether that actually happens or not is really unimportant. We all know that we're uncomfortable as conservatives with this sort of spending. We also know that we're uncomfortable with the government forcing businesses to shut down. And I hate to kind of go after those businesses and say, and these employees who are losing their jobs over this and say, well, the government basically took your job, took your livelihood, and is, gonna not, is not going to compensate for you, uh, compensate you for it. That's, you know, it's not the way it's supposed to work. Uh, Pelosi, though, has, uh, has really kind of gone down an interesting road here. I could tell you that Nancy Pelosi didn't accept uh, the previous arrangement when it came to a stimulus bill because what she really wanted was Joe Biden to be president. And then once Biden was president, she was happy to go along with whatever. I could tell you that, but it's so much more powerful to hear it from her mouth. Listen. Joe Biden committed to ending and crushing the virus and having a build a better America an initiative, Biggle Back Better. Biggle Back Better. A vaccine, answer to our prayers. Hmm. Where'd that come from? An answer to our prayers of 95% effectiveness in terms of Pfizer and Moderna, and there may be others uh, coming forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, that makes That is a total game changer. Okay. A new president oh, a new and president. a vaccine. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing to these are different. What what was then before was not more of this. Mm. This is has simplicity. Okay. it's what we've had in our bills. Mm -hmm. It's for a shorter period of time. Mm -hmm. But that's okay now because we have a new president, a president who recognizes that we need to depend on science to stop the virus. So you're (laughs) That's a fascinating one. Uh, the idea here is that Nancy Pelosi is fine with a new package because we have a new president. Now, if you really want to dig into what she's trying to say there, I think, is that because we have a vaccine, the window is shorter and we can accept a, a, hundred, a few hundred billion dollars. We all knew that this vaccine was on its way. Anthony Fauci has been out there saying it was coming for a long time. We've done shows before here uh, wondering whether they were being too optimistic about it. Uh, We were a little worried about that. 
Uh, right now, it looks like things are going pretty well. We'll see. The, the, uh, we'll talk a little bit about the results uh, of the uh, trial uh, for the Pfizer vaccine coming up here in a little while um, as we've had uh, more information now on that. And we'll kind of give you a rundown of, of what the information showed. But the bottom line here is uh, that we all knew the vaccine was on the way. We understood that was going on. There was a point back in you know late fall where the Democrats decided they were against the vaccine. The vaccine wasn't a great hope. It wasn't a miracle. It wasn't an answer to our prayers. It was a thing that got in the way of potentially defeating Donald Trump. So they all came out and they said, oh, well, we're not going to take it. We, we don't trust Donald Trump. We're going to have to run it through a bunch of different layers of, uh, of tests afterward. I mean, who knows? We could be very masked until the year 2029. And that is kind of where they went on this. Um, I will say the, the press actually was trying to hold Pelosi to account. She was getting pretty pissed off at them because they kept going back and forth. Uh, she had another question, and, and, and the question basically revolved around, look, you could have had $2 trillion easily last time if you just decided to deal with the White House. Mnuchin wanted to put this together, had a huge package put together, and you kept rejecting it. And now you're not going to get even half that amount of money um, because you guys just wanted to have a political win. Nancy was pissed off at that question. I'm going to tell you something. No. Don't, don't characterize what we did before as a mistake, as a preface to your question, if you want an answer. That was not a mistake. It was a decision, and it has taken us to a place where we can do the right thing without other, shall we say, considerations in the legislation that we don't want. Now, that is it. Now, th the fact is, I'm very proud of where we are. Mm. I'm proud of where we are, too. It's going so well. I like that. And not a mistake. It was a decision. What is it? Blocking multiple trillions of dollars of relief to Americans, uh, keeping businesses in business. Uh, that's the mistake. That was the decision. She's admitting that this was a decision they made. And we know the reason they made the decision. It was politics. We know. Uh, I mean, when you ha when let me put it this way. When you're on the left. And you've done so much crap that you've lost Bernie Sanders. Then, you know, you've gone. <laughs> you know, this is a an outlier. This Nancy Pelosi is not good at this. Look at Bernie Sanders. Admit the truth as well. Well, you talked about that one point eight uh, trillion dollar bill that the White House, Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, was working on uh, with the House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Um, the Democrats walked away from that. That's bill right. Because they wanted two point two trillion and they walked away from one point eight trillion. Was that a mistake? That's what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. Here was a proposal much, much larger. Democrats said, no, that's not good enough. And now we're prepared to accept a proposal which has, I think, $350 billion in new money. I mean, Bernie, you could tell, is legitimately pissed off there. Now, Bernie wants all the money to be spent because he wants the government to pay for everything. So I'm not cheering for Bernie's position here. But it is interesting how Nancy Pelosi was able to walk this line. She decided... You know, she's going to do this thing based on politics. She did not. She was not going to negotiate with Republicans. They blocked this over and over and over again. So the American people could not get the relief from the from the same lockdowns that Democrats were putting in. Uh, and then at the end of the day, she's still trying to have her cake and eat it, too. Let them eat cake. Nancy Pelosi said, have I told you lately that Nancy Pelosi sucks? Have I told you lately that Nancy Pelosi sucks? We've got it on mugs. We've got it on T-shirts. We've got it all over the place. Why? Because Nancy Pelosi sucks. This pen is like a collector's item, okay? Because Nancy Pelosi sucks so much. That's how much she sucks. Do we have the, do we have the pens or do we have the mugs or the T-shirts? 
Uh, I mean, do we have uh, can we show this to the American people? We don't have it. I don't understand how that's possible. It's right, there it is. I've got it right on my sheet right here. Nancy Pelosi sucks mug. It's available now. Get it for Christmas time. StuDoesMerch.com. I will say it is an embarrassment. Nancy Pelosi. Uh, I just don't understand how. I mean, like, th- this is amazing, too. Um, Hakeem Jeffries has come out and he said she's going to be reelected Speaker of the House. There's no. There's no assessment here where the Democrats say, gosh, she's she sucks. They, they don't think of this. You know, the fact that she lost, uh, you know, uh, her majority, she almost lost it completely, but she lost any wiggle room that she had. And a lot of this has to do with her uh, doing a terrible job for for multiple years. And, of course, the you know, throw on the piling on of AOC and defunding the police and all that, which Pelosi generally tries to stay away from. She's. Uh, smart enough politically to realize that's a bad idea. But all these things are things that Democrats want and they try to, to, to go after. And the one time you can come after, you can stop and say, look, spending a bunch of money to help the American people, this is probably the right thing to do here at some level. We've talked about this before. We can go overboard here and we may have already gone overboard. But the idea is you can't spend unlimited amounts of money, but you have to compensate American, the American people for things you stole from them. That, that does seem legitimate, even to conservatives. And the one time you had the opportunity to do that, you decided to play politics over it, and you're just trying to win now and have it both ways. I'm not going to let it happen. I don't think you're going to let it happen, but I guarantee the Democrats will let it happen. I will leave you with this. Nancy Pelosi sucks. Does it make sense that the same company who controls half of online retail also passively eavesdrops on your private conversations at home? I know for me it does. I love it. It's time to put a layer of protection between your online activity and these tech companies. Uh, That's why I use ExpressVPN. Think about how much of your life is on the Internet. Too much. I guarantee it's too. You're probably even watching this show on the Internet, aren't you? Sadly, every site you visit, uh, every video you watch, every message you send gets tracked and data mined doesn't need to be that way. When you run ExpressVPN on your device, the software hides your IP address and makes your activity harder to trace and sell to advertisers. What I like most about ExpressVPN is how easy it is. I will say some VPNs, they slow your phones down, they slow your computer down, they're a pain to use. I don't, I don't know anything about technology in that way. Like if, if something goes wrong, I'm screwed. ExpressVPN's easy. Doesn't slow down your device. You tap one button, you're protected. Stop handing over your personal data to big tech. There's no reason for that. Protect yourself with the VPN I trust to keep myself safe online. ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN.com slash stew. E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash stew. Uh, get three extra months free. And also, that's how they know you like this stupid show. Go to ExpressVPN.com slash stew. Do it now. Protect yourself. ExpressVPN.com slash stew. Happy to welcome back to the program Chris Rufo. He's the director for the Center on Wealth and Poverty, as well as a contributing editor for City Journal, and really one of the guys who's leading the way on exposing what is going on with critical race theory. Uh, you have a new story, a wild one, from San Diego. What is going on there? Yeah, in San Diego, uh, they're asking teachers to participate in so-called white privilege training. Uh, and these trainings uh, have a slide that is kind of 
capitalized letters that says uh, you are racist, another one that says you uphold racist ideas, institutions and policies, uh, and then goes through a basic kind of psychological reprogramming. Once they've established that white teachers in San Diego are racist, uh, they force them to accept this. Uh, then they build them back up and tell them that they must turn their classrooms into anti-racist activist organizations. Uh, it's totally outrageous. And as when I brought it to light, um, the news has spread and uh, put the school district on the defensive. Good. First of all, thank God there are uh, they're they're having to answer for this stuff. I mean, this is, you know, a very typical sort of Ibram Kendi, uh, you know, white fragility approach uh, to this. And it's seeping in seemingly everywhere. I mean, thank God you're finding all these examples because there's no way we'd be able to uh, to keep track of all this. How widespread is this really? Oh, this is extremely widespread. It's basically become the default ideology of our public institutions. Mm. Uh, everything from the Treasury Department of the United States down to small school districts uh, in red and blue states. And I think what's important is that parents uh, for a long time have had no idea what's really going on in staff meetings and faculty meetings. I think there's a opportunity because of the COVID lockdowns. Everything is now digital. Everything is now live streamed. Everything is now documented. And what we're doing is going through and finding examples of this kind of egregious training and putting a stop to it uh, by rallying teachers, rallying the public. And uh, all over the next six months, I'll be releasing a series of reports of these exact kind of trainings in school districts all over the country. Um, you know, what I think is a good summary is that they're throwing out the old three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic, uh, and they're really teaching the new three R's, racism, racism, and racism. Mm. Amazing. Uh, let me let's go through some of these uh, slides that you uncovered. Uh, this one you mentioned, uh, you are racist, <laughs> which is an amazing. I'm not saying this to you, Chris. This is what the slide says uh, in the chat. It says, try to use one word to answer the question. How would this make you feel? I guess if someone were to say you are racist, think to yourself, what would you want to say to someone who tells you this? You know, one of the things we've talked about for a long time is, is the are would you be racist? Right. The question is, are you a racist? not you are racist. And the idea would be we all want to avoid that, of course. This is why it's effective. Everyone wants to avoid being a racist. No one wants to be a racist. Um, but they start with the presupposition that you are a racist and then just make you answer to, to this ridiculous accusation. Yeah, that's a right. It, it, it's an accusation in the form of a false question because there's only one right answer. The answer uh, is yes, because if you say, yes, I'm a racist, uh, then they can basically say, okay, you've admitted your sin. Now we're here to help uh, assuage your guilt and here to reprogram you as an anti-racist activist. But if you say, well, no, I'm not racist. If you said you're a racist, I would disagree. Then what they do is they bring in their white fragility theory where they say, well, that's actually an expression of your fragile whiteness and internalized racial superiority uh, that you can't come to terms with. And we're here to coach you uh, through this process so you can finally accept the deep truth about you that is predetermined by your race, uh, that you are an kind of upholder of white supremacy. So, uh, you know, they frame these things as kind of false questions, as 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 kind of subjective statements or as tentative statements. Uh, but really underneath it, the ideology is very clear. Mm -hmm. um, they're telling white San Diego teachers that they are uh, white supremacists and uh and they need to reform themselves. Yeah, it's amazing you kind of see how this builds on itself. It's like you are a racist. If you either say yes to this and they have answers to that, we'll go through. Or if you say no to it, you have to go. They bring up the white privilege 
part of this. Uh, you have a slide here. White privilege, my ability to thrive, not just survive in this country, is being preserved at every level of power without me having to do anything at all. I don't even have to vote. And then they list on the side uh, some numbers. God only knows if they're actually accurate from 2016 to 2017. That says like the 10 richest Americans are 100 percent white. Congress is 90 percent white. I mean, towards the bottom, it says people who decide which TV shows we see are is 93 percent white. Which books we read, what people decide, which books I read. I don't even know who those people are. But I mean, you know what? It echoes, there's, there's, it reminds, there's 10 white dudes somewhere in New York. They yeah. decide everything that you read. It's true. They just mail me books and I just read them. I have no control. Uh, but it's interesting, though. That part of it in particular reminds me almost of how a white supremacist would say, did you know Jews control the media? I mean, it's that type of like it's trying to create hatred towards a group, which I always thought was the definition of racism, not the cure for it. Yeah, and, and it really relies on a kind of logical error and a logical, I think, error that's done on purpose to obscure the issue. They're basically saying that the people at the height of power, the 500 people that are the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies are predominantly white, but they're make, making the assumption, and therefore, if you are white, you are like that white CEO. Well, well as in fact, uh, except for a very tiny number of people, most white Americans are not CEOs or or control of television stations, et cetera. And you know, they have struggles just like anyone else. And it says you know, in the slide, uh, your privilege is upheld without you having you to do any work at all. Well, that's not really true for anyone of any racial background. Most people uh, have to go to work, have to take care of kids, have to go through medical challenges, health challenges, et cetera. Um, certainly it's not proportionate in, in every case, but uh, the reality is that we are much more similar than we are different. And the race theorists uh, can't take that uh, at all. They have to insist on uh, dividing people on the basis of a kind of biological basis of race. Well, first of all, Chris, that's exactly what I would expect a white person to say. So I just want to make sure you understand your your privileges is, is showing right now. Um, but it's like it's interesting that they even have these answers for when you say, well, look, I mean, I, I live in a trailer park. I, you know, I, I have no money in my bank account. I have lots of debt. Uh, I am not a person who has privilege. And they say you still do. I mean, here, look at this. Uh, this is one another one of your slides that you've discovered. Uh, we acknowledge that we meet on stolen land taken from indigenous people. Um, even just the concept of you being in America at all is a is a function of white privilege. It goes that deep, apparently, Chris. Yeah, it does. And it's the idea that you are an interloper in your own country, uh, that you fundamentally don't belong here, that your very existence uh, in space and time is fundamentally illegitimate. Um, it really goes deep and it's kind of absurd. They construct it in a way that is tries to play into people's fear of speaking out, play into people's uh, kind of internalized guilt. Um, but it really is absurd. I mean, if, if you're living in San Diego, uh, your mortgage payments are likely enormous. And uh, you have, uh, you know, people that are struggling to get by um, that aren't kind of stealing land or doing anything of the sort. And I think the, the problem is that we have to be very strong, very vocal and very clear in rejecting this kind of uh, ideology. Uh, unfortunately, for a lot of teachers, including the whistleblower uh, who leaked these documents to me, people are scared. People are intimidated. People are fear, fearful of speaking out. 
Uh, and I hope that uh, with more reports like this, that dynamic will change. And then President Trump came along to this way of thinking and noticing this. I know in a large part, I think, because of your reporting. Um, and it wasn't he wasn't something he necessarily did a lot about uh, early on his administration. But he's done a lot in the last year or so, um, which is good. But, you know, again, that, you know, administrations change and this is going to go swinging back the other way. Let me give you this. Uh, this is the next one here. You are upholding racist ideas, structures and policies. And, and I want to tie this to the next uh, slide, which is about emotions. And what they kind of do is they say, OK, here's a here's a, a terrible accusation about what a terrible person you are. And then they focus on your emotions and it says your emotions, racial stress that are stirred when making white people consider racial realities, guilt, anger, apathy, frustration, closed mindedness, uh, defensiveness. It prevents us from having a racial dialogue. So, like, you're the problem as the white person for being upset, for even being called a racist when you're not a racist. Every single direction this conversation goes comes back to the color of your skin as a white person. And when conversations revolve around a lot of things and always come back to the color of their skin, that's what I thought racism was. Yeah, it it, it is. But racism has been redefined as power plus privilege. So you can be a racist towards groups that have power and privilege uh, and 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 it's actually not considered racism in this new rubric. But uh, the, the most kind of fundamental thing that I think is wrong with this is that it ascribes racism not to behavior. So it doesn't say, well, if you do this thing or you behave in this way or you believe these ideas, uh, that's evidence of you being racist. I mean, that's true. There are racist people in the United States. There always have been. Um, but they're actually saying something that is much more uh, sinister, much more embedded. They're saying by virtue of your skin color, by virtue of your circumstances at birth, you are by definition racist. Mm. And and kind of building on that, the kind of conclusion from that premise is that there's nothing you can do to get rid of it. If whiteness is essentially the same thing as racism, you can't stop being white. Therefore, you can't stop being racist. And that's when the emotions come into play. Then they'll say, well, you're going to feel guilt, frustration, anger, defensiveness, closed mindedness. But this is just more evidence that we're right. It's intellectually bankrupt uh, and is going to uh, create so many more fractures in our society uh, unless we put a stop to it. You know, um, my my wife, uh, you know, she does some commentating as well, and she she one time railed against uh, Ibram Kendi's children's book, Anti-Racist Baby. And she was, you know, she's been hammered for this online for a long time because anti-racism, how can how can you possibly complain about a baby not being racist? And the, this is the setup of the conversation. I mean, you point this out in, the, in another one of the slides that you have. What can you commit to? You can confront and examine your white privilege. You can acknowledge when you feel white fragility. You can teach others to see their privilege. This, the construct of this argument is impossible. It's an impossible conversation to have because you're always racist. And unless you agree with every one of their ideas and every way to solve it, these problems will apparently never be solved. Uh, The only thing, only defense I ever hear from anyone is, look, it's a it's a conference these things roll past you. No one's going to start. They're not going to start you know, confronting their white fragility in their schools. Is this a real threat or is this something that us, us evil white people are just freaking out about? 
No, it, it absolutely is. It's not just a conference. It's not just a one-off. This is the ideology that's being embedded uh, at the highest levels of school districts, then taught to teachers, and then actually taught to students in the classroom uh, through a wide range of resources. And this is a concerted effort. I mean, there are uh, the, the last statistics about a decade ago was that this diversity and inclusion business was about an $8 billion annual industry. I suspect that it's at least doubled or tripled in the intervening time. So there is a huge section of the economy, section of our politics uh, that is pushing for this. And I think that what you see as the kind of end output is a huge dichotomy, a huge spread. Whereas in San Diego public schools, this school district, only 47% of students are proficient in math and reading. Mm. But rather than teaching those essential skills that will give students a leg up and a way to move up uh, in society, they're teaching them uh, this kind of toxic garbage that will only hold people back, only create more divisions. Uh, and I think it serves the secondary purpose of shifting the blame. You can say, well, you can't blame the school. You can't blame the teachers for this poor academic performance. What we can do now is blame systemic racism. Uh, but I think it's a dodge. And I, I really hope that school districts get back to teaching uh, the fundamental skills that will help uh, students achieve. Mm, it's a great it's a great argument for teachers unions, of course. They're totally protected in this world. Um, Chris Rufo, uh, Chris, where can people find you to read your stuff? And also, if they happen to go through one of these conferences and they want to make sure you see the stuff that they, that they went through, how do they how do they contact you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at real Chris Rufo, R-U-F-O, uh, or you can email me at chrisrufo at protonmail.com. Uh, that is my secure email drop for leaked documents and whistleblower documents. So uh, if you see something uh, and you want to share it, happy to keep you anonymous um, because I'll be working on this story uh, in the coming months uh, and exposing uh, school after school after school uh, that is putting this kind of uh, highly ideological uh, rhetoric uh, into practice uh, with students. All right, Chris, thanks so much. And for all the work you're doing on this, it's really important. When you have more updates, please come back on and tell us about it. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Uh, Chris Rufo, director for the Center of on Wealth and Poverty and contributing editor for City Journal. Back in a second. So the first uh, vaccine recipient in U the UK, uh, that's that's happened now. They made a big news story out of it. Do we have a picture of her? Um, this is uh, so a 91 year old grandmother, Margaret Keenan, Margaret Keenan. It's an interesting game they're playing. You know, look, it makes a lot of sense to give the vaccine to elderly people. Uh, first, right? I mean, it, you know, it does. They're the most vulnerable. Maybe first you go with the healthcare workers. That was at least the discussion here. The question is, you give you give it to a 91 year old. Uh, you know, <laughs> they're kind of close to the. I just hope something bad doesn't happen to the first person who gets it, because then it'll be a public relations disaster, and no one will want to take the vaccine. Uh, the uh, so far, the results look pretty good. The uh, the there's a couple side effects. They're all pretty mild. Chills was one of the big ones. Soreness at injection spot. I mean, I don't know how you cure that if you're using an X vaccine. Do we have this chart here? This is a chart uh, of the results. And if you see the uh, the red uh, bubble line kind of slanting up consistently, that's the line of the people who got the placebo. So no protection from the vaccine. And the blue line after about 10 days, almost no infections whatsoever. Uh, once it kicks in, really promising results. We'll keep following it for you. Back in a second. Intermittent fasting is exploding as uh, as an option here for people 
losing weight and losing weight quickly, especially if you're around this time. This is I told you before, this is like one of the most important times when it comes to dieting for the entire year. Why? You got Thanksgiving, you got Christmas. You know, there's going to be some eating going on there. You're going to have maybe a Christmas party. You're going to have some good meals. There's going to be lots of treats around. You got to have these weeks in between. You got to be good because if you let it go out of control, then you're out of control for like a whole month. Then you're right into New Year's. Then you start the new year off and, you know, you have your four days where you eat right on for your New Year's resolution. And then you're rolling into the Super Bowl parties and and I don't know, Valentine's Day, uh, Lincoln's birthday. You got to have a big meal on Lincoln's birthday. My point here is that intermittent fasting can help you manage a tough holiday season. It does it really well. Fast Blast is the way to do it. Do your own homework. Go to fastblast.com slash blaze. They can walk you through exactly how to do intermittent fasting. There's a bunch of different ways to do it. Plus, they can give you uh, uh, these great smoothies that they have. And uh, the Fasten app, F-A-S-T-E-N. You can get it at your app store right now, Fasten. It's fastblast.com slash blaze. Get started today with Fast Blast for a healthier and smaller you. It's fastblast.com slash blaze. Joined now by Jason Cousins. He's the CEO and founder of Glint. You've heard me talk about Glint Pay on the show many times. Jason, thanks for coming on the program. Hi, Stu. It's awesome to be on the program. I appreciate you doing this. Uh, you know, as I watch uh, all this craziness that goes on in this world right now, uh, and we're in the middle of obviously the coronavirus stuff. They're talking about another gigantic bailout uh, package uh, slash stimulus slash whatever they're calling it these days. The spending is 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 scary. And I don't know what's going to go on with the dollar in the future, uh, but I am I am definitely uh, on the train where I'm worried about it. How do you see this going forward? Yeah, well, I think a lot of us are worried about it. I've actually been worried about it since 2008. I mean, my kind of uh, beginning of understanding about all of this happened when I'm watching Lehman Brothers go bust. And I think like a lot of people, it was the first time that I realized that A, a bank is not a risk-free deposit of funds because fundamentally that you put your money in the bank and it ceases to be yours. Uh, They lend it out to people. And then, of course, you start to think about money itself. Why is it that money has depreciated in ways that are outside of our control? Why is it a burger uh, used to cost, you know, 55 cents when I was younger, now costs $3.50. And if you're in LA, it's $10. And, um, you know, the shocking reality or truth that the dollar has lost 85% of its purchasing power in my lifetime. Just think about mm. that for a second, 85%, you know, and 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 that's before this massive quantitative easing money printing machine has got into action with with COVID. So if it's been 85% in your lifetime, I mean, what do we expect for the future? I mean, when you look at the outlook over the next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, how should people be thinking about this? Well, you know, it's a scary outlook, isn't it? Um, you don't have to be an econo- economist to kind of have the concerns that we all, that we all have about about money and what's going to happen. What we need is a solution, you know, and certainly from my perspective, I started looking for that solution and, and found it with with gold. You know, gold in my lifetime hasn't gone down by 85 percent in its purchasing power. It's increased by, you know, over 550 percent. So uh, for me, that was the solution that that I turned to. 
I know you're obviously a big, you know, gold guy. You run a company that uh, deals with gold. So I know that's the way you're looking at this. Um, You know, some people like the Bitcoin type of stuff, the crypto world. Uh, Some people are doing, you know, sort of the traditional investments. Why do you think gold uh, beats them out? Well, I think you, the, the secret's in the last word that you use is investments. You know, what happens when money is depreciating so fast, although insidiously, and, you know, is that people need to try and do something just to maintain that purchasing power, just to keep their money buying what it, it did when they, when they earned it. They have to put it at risk. And so they start making investments in stock markets. They start making speculative investments in new cryptocurrencies because they're desperate to keep up that purchasing power. And for me, really, money should be something. Money should be something that just holds its purchasing power. It's not an investment. It's not a risk. And that's why I think for me, gold is, well, for lots of for millions of people, billions of people around the world, they realize that gold is that ultimate form of money. It's not really an investment the way I see it. It is the oldest form of money. And um, yeah, it's uh, it's no one else's liability. One thing that really terrifies me uh, when looking at the the American sort of uh, landscape right now is that we had for a long time a setup where Republicans, when they would get in office, would spend some money and Democrats would want to spend more. And then Democrats would get into office and they'd want to spend a lot of money and Republicans would find their spine and they would all of a sudden be super tough on spending. Um, we're it's sort of now, I think maybe in this sort of change that we've had from maybe a more libertarian re- Republican Party to a more nationalist Republican Party. One of the things that has evaporated on the front is there's really not a lot of pushback spending wise from the right anymore. And then you kind of have this idea that one party is saying, I want to spend, you know, th- these these uh, these uh, these packages are a good example. But, you know, the Democrats want to spend three trillion and Republicans want to spend two. There's no one saying, like, maybe we should spend a lot less than either one of those two numbers. How I mean, this doesn't seem like a road that's going to lead to a lot of good things. No, you've hit the nail on the head there, and it's something that a lot of people don't think about. You know, the monetary system, the way it, the way it's designed since we came off the gold standard in 1970, means that governments and politicians can literally print as much money as they want. And the theory, I think, originally was that if you needed to stimulate the economy, you could use this as a mechanism to get things going. But then you needed to stop when times were good. You needed to pull your belt in. You know, you needed to do what every good household needs to do, put their, get their books right, pay down their debts uh, when times are good, ready for when times are bad. The problem, of course, is democracy itself, if you think about it a little bit, you know, the, the way the, politi- the political system works. People get up there and they say, hey, vote for me for all these different reasons. It's very difficult pill to say to the electorate, hey, vote for me and we're going to have some austerity. We're going to pull our belt in. We're going to we're going to we're going to we're going to, you know, we're not going to live beyond our means. You know, very few people actually want to take that very seriously and and vote for that person. And so uh, instead, the politicians get up. They say, vote for me and I'll I promise to give you everything you want. And then they just, you know, go to the central bank and say, give me <laughs> give me the money that I need. And of course, the problem with that is, is that it's encouraging a credit spending culture and economy. It's it's not good for savers. Going back to what we've been discussing since the beginning of this conversation, 
It just means that the money that you've got in the bank, uh, you've got the money wherever you've got it stored is depreciating if it's kept in dollars. It's leading to people to make risky investments. So, yeah, it's a fundamental problem, but I think people have to come up with their own solution. And I think really what, we, what I've been trying to do is give everybody you know, their own personal gold standard because governments are not going to do it for us. Yeah, before you go, because, I mean, this is not a paid commercial. I just wanted to talk to you kind of about the economy. We talked about this stuff off the air before. Um, but give, a, give people an outline of what you're doing with Glint Pay, because it is, it is interesting and it's, it's a different way of thinking of this. Uh, and you kind of pointed this out you know, to me off the air, this idea of gold is kept pretty consistent that you, know, you could buy a, a, a suit you know, 50 years ago with the same amount of gold you know, would buy you a, a, a suit today. There really hasn't been that depreciation change. No. And so how do we use it? Because as a store of value, I think it's, you know, unchallengeable. But as a medium of exchange, you know, you can't use it traditionally to go in and pay for anything. You can't use it to pay for products or services, you, you know, at all. So that's what I set out to do. I'd been involved in, you know, in, in digital, the digital economy and the, as it was emerging, the digital ecosystem. And I've been looking at how you improve things, how you make them better. And I just thought, hang on, gold is the most, uh, the best store of value. How can we make it work in electronic payments? How can we make it participate in this digital payments ecosystem that we have? And that's what we've done. Um, we've built a, uh, an app, an account um, that you can sign up to really easily. You get given a debit card. You can buy your gold really cheaply and we can use it as money, you know. I can actually go into a coffee shop and and buy a coffee with it. I can save up and save my gold and not spend it. But when I do, I can just pull out my card and and and, and uh, give it to the merchant to to pay for something. We're we're looking to build uh, a platform, a global payments platform that allows gold to really participate as a real alternative viable currency. Yeah, it is a really cool idea, and it works a lot better than my current idea, which is I just throw gold coins at the person uh, at 7-Eleven when I'm buying a Slurpee. It works much better than that. Uh, Jason Cousins, CEO and founder of Glint Pay. Uh, it's a really cool thing. If you want to give it a shot, go to uh, glintpay.com. What is it? Glintpay.com slash stew, I assume, is the uh, address. Um, That's it. Yeah, it's very cool and a very cool idea. Plus, you can brag to your friends that you're paying, paying for Slurpees in gold, and that's always very fun. Jason, thanks for coming on the program, man. Thanks a lot. Bye. All right, back in a second. Okay, I want to tell you about Black Rifle Coffee Company. You know, you can buy uh, your Black Rifle Coffee with your GlintPay card. I mean, it works that. It's very easy. Uh, they have donated over 45,000 uh, pounds of coffee to soldiers deployed overseas, law enforcement officers, firefighters on the West Coast, medical workers on the front line, just in 2020 alone. That tells you nothing about their coffee. I will be honest about it. It just tells you that they're good people making a good product and doing the right things. But I will say that their coffee is also top-notch. For every coffee purchase that you make throughout the month of November, Black Rifle Coffee will send a bag of their limited edition holiday roast to a service member currently deployed overseas to be delivered by Christmas morning, um, which is really cool. It's operated by veterans. They know. Uh, how important a, a good cup of coffee can be when you're deployed. Buy a bag, give a bag right now. Plus, I will tell you, maybe, I mean, I don't know. Maybe you are like, you know, AOC, not a huge fan of the troops or something. I don't know. I will tell you, if you like coffee, you're going to like Black Rifle Coffee. It's a great purchase, and you're helping out the troops. How do you do better than that? BlackRifleCoffee.com slash stew. BlackRifleCoffee.com slash stew. Use slash stew part of the address. Why? Because you get 20% off your coffee, and that's how they know you like this stupid show. 
Use the coffee club. Get the free, uh, get the coffee every single uh, month delivered to your home. It's blackriflecoffee.com slash stew, blackriflecoffee.com slash stew. We have a Stu Does America controversy to tell you about. All the time, I tell you, go to YouTube to get my channel. Just search for Stu. I'll be the first one there, right? I say that all the time. Here's the problem. This past weekend, Saturday Night Live did a bit, and they called it Stu. So now, when you go and you search for Stu, I will not be the first one there. I will be the second one there, because the stupid Saturday Night Live thing is there, which was actually really funny. They finally do a freaking funny bit in like a decade. It's the first one they've done in like a decade, and they name it Stu. Well, I'm still the first channel there, and hopefully if you go to YouTube, search for Stu, click on my name, I'll take over first place again. We will see you tomorrow.